Welcome back to the show, or maybe welcome to the show. If this is your first time, what happens here is that every week I awake to find my head has been removed and surgically attached to the body of another friend and movie lover. Together, we're given a note containing a theme, sometimes cryptic, sometimes specific. It is then our job to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme, watch, and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Here we are, and I'm really excited about today's guest. Today's guest is Benicula Blanc. Benicula, how's it going? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, we're you know we're doing good. It um, we're recording this a bit in advance for anybody that cares. So it's Christmas week, and I'm in here in the room. We're talking a couple of movies, and uh, my partner is out there with the kids, and they're going to be decorating some sugar cookies here to keep them busy while we're doing this, but. I guess, yeah, we're getting into the holiday spirit around here. How, how have you been doing? I'm at least snowy here. We just got dumped on today. I, I don't always miss that. I don't always miss Alaska. But I, like, my our youngest daughter, it, it's funny to think about it because our oldest daughter was born in Alaska, obviously. Our youngest daughter was born down here. And it's interesting to think that my daughter isn't an Alaskan. <laughs> and she's, <laughs> she's seen snow once. We went uh, went up to the... San Jacinto Mountains, and um, we saw snow, and she was able to walk around. That was like two years ago now, and she just misses it. She's been watching all these Christmas movies and specials, and she just wants to go see snow. There is snow down here in places, but it, it we don't have a way to get to it right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely not like not like Alaska. Well, maybe when everything calms down, you can bring her up for a visit one winter. My dad's been really wanting us to go up there. And he just finished building a house that looks really nice. And we'd love to, we'd love to, but there's a lot of things that are going to have to change before we do that. Yeah, I was actually supposed to be going down to LA for Christmas this year to see my family. I did last year. And so obviously this year it's not not happening for me, but yeah. So I was trying to escape the snow for the winter and your daughter's trying to run towards it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I kind of miss it too. After six years, like there's not a lot of things I miss about Alaska, but I uh, I do miss that feeling in the winter time of like there there being snow on the ground. It's really dark, and you're just kind of in the middle of a a warm cave in your living room. I do like how homey everything feels inside in like the darkest months of winter. Yeah, feeling kind of cozy. It's kind of nice. Although it's it is a little bit different. I imagine this year it's starting to get like you know, seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. And I'm sure this year it, it's starting to get on people's nerves a lot with the, the yeah, cold the, and the dark. Yeah. The social isolation is a huge part of it. I usually keep myself very busy during the darker and sweeter months. And uh, of course this year, just being at home and living alone kind of really makes you notice the weather a little bit more. Uh-huh. Uh, but luckily with my orchids that I grow, I do have like supplemental lighting. And so it does help me a little bit to spend some time around that. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, Interesting winter for sure. Well, to speak on that just a minute or I'll go back a bit. I, I see the photos that you post of your uh, orchids and the, 
I, I'm assuming it, some of them aren't always yours. Some of them you're sharing, but like they're very, I don't know. I like seeing your, your, your uh, horticulturist photos, I should say. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm definitely a nerd. And with my orchids, I have over 60 plants right now. I'm glad it's not totally boring. I mean, I get really excited about it, but I know it's, it's like not for everyone. I do share them all the time. I probably overshare uh, my orchids, but um, it's something I really, I really enjoyed. And I think, you know, originally coming from Hawaii and my grandmother always had all these beautiful plants. Um, it inspired me when I was younger to start trying to grow them here and creating kind of just like thinking about how to reproduce their climate at home and see what I could do with that. So after years of trial and error, I have a really awesome collection and I meet with the Orchid Society members about once a month. I mean, of course, now we're on Zoom, just like everything else. But yeah, it's been a really, a really good thing that kind of keeps me grounded. All right. So we have our note in front of us today. And on this note, we have this theme. Today's theme is Zombo Italiano. Kind of a curious little theme. How about we, we take a quick little break. We'll discuss it. We'll come back and we'll talk about a couple of movies. Watchman of the Buffalora Cemetery. My name's Francesco Della Morte. I don't know how the epidemic started. All I know is that some people, on the seventh night after their death, come back to life. Is it true what they say? That the dead come back to life here at night? With your consent, I'd like to marry Nagy. Not as long, dear, as I've got a breath in my body. We'll fix that right away. Stop killing the dead. If you don't want the dead coming back to life, why don't you just kill the living? Are you listening to me? Don't you believe me? No. Tough. Francesco Della Morte, played by Rupert Everett, is the caretaker at an overcrowded cemetery in a provincial Italian community, where the dead have the inconvenient habit of returning to life after seven days. Francesco exists in a permanent haze of morbid ennui, complicated by the arrival of a beautiful woman that he finds himself immediately drawn to. Now, there's a lot more to the story than that. In, in some ways, in others, that, that pretty much is kind of what the movie is. It's not really a plot-driven movie. It's uh, a lot of incidents and a lot, a lot of atmosphere. Now, this one, I have not, I, I, this, I would say this is a, like, I don't know if I would call this one of my favorite movies. It's a movie I do love. Strangely enough, I've only seen it a handful of times. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure, watching it especially this time, I was like, why am I not watching this movie more? Everything about it really kind of worked for me this time. Um, but how about you? When was the first time that you, or what, what's your history with this movie? I, this is your pick. I'm assuming this is one you really like. Yeah, gosh. So this one came out in what, 1993. And I think yeah, I, I was introduced to it in like, I was introduced to it in the late 90s. So probably right before year 2000. Um, I just, I love so many things about it. And it to me, you know, it's not because Rupert Everett's in it. Um, <laughs> I love the story. 
<laughs> that that is that is a draw for a lot of people. Like looking up some reviews on this, everybody seemed to kind of like mention how how unclothed Rupert Everett was at a few times. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I think he did an amazing job playing Mr. Delamorte, but um, I really like the whole atmosphere of the film. Um, I think, as you said, it's very it's very visually pleasing. Um, it's got a really good balance of being dark, still kind of romantic, really funny. Um, I don't mind the soundtrack at all, which that's probably going to be a repeat theme here as as we go. Um, usually these Italian horrors, like I really love the, the soundtracks to them also. Um, I love the way, you know, the main, the main actress, Anna Falci, um, she's very beautiful, but she goes by she. She doesn't really have a name until I think the final time she appears, but she's kind of in and out of his life in these different situations as a different incarnation of herself, kind of torturing him in a way. So that is kind of this unrequited love, you know, this, this tragically romantic situation with that. There's also just really great characters in this film, like Mrs. Caramundo, who's always like, engineer, engineer. And he's like, I'm not an engineer. I love her character. I don't know. There's just so much about this movie that, that I adore. Um, I'm sure we'll kind of get into the plot a little bit more, but it's a, it's a great film. It's a great film. I, I saw this, I, I think I was still in high school. I must have been because it was my friend, uh, my friend Justin and I watched it or he told me that I should rent it. Uh, he had already seen it. So it was a couple of years after it had come out and it really did hit that like mid 90s phase that I was going through kind of a little bit like a, a little bit full of a morbid ennui myself and, you know, maybe antisocial and thinking myself so kind of clever and suave because of it. I, I just was watching it and seeing Rupert Everett and the outfits that he wore. And it's the same outfit. I, I keep saying that he's wearing, he's wearing one outfit and it's black pants, black shoes and a white button up shirt with a black like overcoat over it. And it's really a basic kind of outfit, but it looked really good on him. And it's like, Oh man, I bet. I can't tell you that this movie informed my personality, but I was like, oh, I, I see why, like, what 17-year-old me connected to in this movie with this character. This character is, like, maybe the, the image that I was trying to project at that time as well. St. Francis of Death. <laughs> That's his name. Yeah, yeah. So oh, we, we should also say the original title for this, the very, very superior title to this in Italy is Della Morte, Della More. Yes. Which, which translates basically, you know, of love or sorry, of death, of love. And mm -hmm. it's a play on words that is an infinitely better title than just Cemetery Man, which was given to it by American, American distributors. Oh, um, of course. Yeah. And we'll probably talk about that with our next film, too, because there's a similar situation happening there. Yeah. Well, at least this one, I don't think was ever chopped up. This one was kind of just released as is, but they changed the name. I don't know why they would have. I think I think Della Morte Della More would have would have attracted more of an art house crowd, definitely more of the crowd that would have been into this movie and its tone, you know, than just gore hounds like looking for something on 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 the video shelves. Although this does have some, you know, for for those gore hounds, there's plenty in there in this movie for them as well. I just think this this movie positions itself as as kind of almost an art house movie that 
that audience might not have found it with such a generic title. Like I, I kind of think of, you know, the fans of, of David Lynch or specifically Terry Gilliam. I mean, there's a lot of Terry Gilliam running through this entire movie. Yeah. As I was kind of saying, it has a really great balance of being dark and funny with it too, which is one of the reasons I, I just really, I was like, I have to have this in my collection. Um, and I agree with you, uh, Delamorte, Delamorte, way better title for this film. It's more representative of the film itself, of course, but yeah, I definitely wanted to purchase that. And I was doing, uh, so it's actually, his character is actually based off, I don't know if you've ever read the Dylan Dog comic. Yeah, I, I've never read it. Um, there is a movie. <laughs> either yeah so it's his character throughout this film is actually based on him i've never really gotten into that comic but just kind of a side note um well, where it's tied to i because because the comic is was created by michele suave as well i believe and what i'd read from him is that basically dylan dog he patterned after rupert everett so he's not actually in this movie like playing that character but that character was based on this or at least visually, and probably a little bit with the attitude kind of based on this as well. Yeah, and then it I kind think, of ties back to this film. I, I think. It's been a while since I, I read about that. But they, yeah, they made a movie out of that with uh, Brandon Routh, who played Superman in the latest, no, not the latest, the 2006 movie. It was, it was okay. I, I wanted to like it more, but I, I like that. I like that kind of style that it was going for anyway. But yeah, you're- you, There's like, so many amazing characters in this film though, like, like Nagi. Nagi oh, and his relationship with the TV. That is me during the pandemic. Yeah. Like, yeah. No better, like... <laughs> Nagi is great. I, I really like the relationship between the two of them because in my memory, since I haven't seen this in years, my memory was that Francesco was just kind of like abusive to, to Nagi. And he, he definitely kind of doesn't treat him as an equal but he also seems like much more fond of Nagi than I, I remembered. Like he, he, he tries to cheer him up at pivotal times in the movie. He, he kind of treats him like a, like a pack animal at times as well, but he's also kind of has, has like almost a big brother relationship with him that I, I enjoyed this time because Francesco is kind of for all of his ennui and he, he really is kind of for how antisocial he is and that he, he just kind of like, seems sick of everybody he does have real affection for a couple of the weirdos in in his life like um well like naga nagi he's got real affection for and uh you you mentioned her name and i cannot remember it the elderly elderly lady that was oh always... mrs caramundo yeah. yeah yeah he he has real affection when he finds out that she's died he seems like really not not overly depressed but he he seems like he's he feels it a little bit. He is a little bit, he's a little bit upset about it. Yeah. He's definitely, he definitely puts out this indifferent vibe um, to everyone. Um, but the cool thing, I mean, and this is kind of where the patterns come in with him and Nagi. So at the beginning of the movie, it opens with the snow globe. So you see the snow globe, there's like a tunnel inside of it. And the two of them are standing on the edge. So then the film kind of opens and that's, that's them. It kind of, towards the end when they're trying to leave Buffalora and get out of that town and they, they drive through and they realize this is the end. Like the road just abruptly stops. Nagi gets injured. Francesco is like, Oh, he's going to die or he's going to re reanimate because he's used to everyone reanimating. So he's getting ready to shoot him. 
and Nagi wakes back up and, you know, he's having this revelation, like we're, we're never going to get off the edge of this cliff. Like we are stuck in Bofalora. There's nothing outside of this. And he, he realizes Nagi was my best friend. And he's kind of having this inner dialogue about Nagi thinking he's going to lose him. And he's like, you were my best friend just to kind of tie that into like their dynamic and their relationship um, throughout the film. I mean, we, we've jumped ahead then to the ending. I mean, we don't really like cover the plot too much in this in this show, but um, the ending- Yeah, that was a bit of a spoiler. Sorry, I didn't realize we were going in order, but- <laughs> Oh, no, no, we're not. We jump all over the place. We jump all over the place. So the ending of the movie is, yeah, it, he tries to leave. There's, there's a lot of surrealism in this movie, not just to the fact that the dead keep coming back to life. Then you've got, of course, she, who is- playing three different characters, two of which die. <laughs> she has a name in the last character she plays, the student. Her name's Laura. That's right, that's right. I, I, but that's like the only time she's ever named. Yeah, so you've got this like the surrealism of not just those two things, but there's always these, these weird things around the edges as well. Francesco has a vision of death, and death tells him to stop killing the dead, that he should start shooting the living instead. So... He's clearly like losing touch a little bit. The movie leaves it an open question how much of that stuff is real and how much of it is Francesco being an unreliable narrator. Because he's, he's our primary point of view. But towards the end of the movie, you're starting to think like, well, what if this is real? It seemed clear that the dead are coming back. But there's a lot of other things that are just like, it, it kind of reminds me- Who's murdering of, the townspeople? Yeah, you know? it, it reminded me a little bit of American Psycho, where- <laughs> He Definitely. Kind of, Francesco keeps killing people and he keeps getting away from it right to the point where Francesco walks out of a room where he's just killed three people and the, the police inspector is there and like, <laughs> there's a madman loose in the hospital. Oh, good. You've got a gun. You can protect yourself. And he. Yeah. He <laughs> there's so many funny things about this movie where yeah. you're just like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, that one's definitely a trip. And then his friend Franco's like confessing to all the murders. Yeah, and he actually goes to visit Franco, and Franco's like, who are you? I don't know you. Yeah, I don't even know you. That was, I really like how they filmed that scene, by the way. Well, first it was just kind of funny because he was just blindly shooting anyone who came in to question why he was there. The doctor comes in and he's like, what's the nun doing on the floor? And he's like, oh, praying, but he's just shot her. Like, but besides that, there's just like some comical things he did in that period. But besides that, when they pan out, you just see the room and it's it's kind of just got the dividers that makes a circle around that bed. And then it's just darkness surrounding it, which visually really kind of tied it into the end where it's like there's the end of that road. They go through that tunnel and there's nothing out there. The yeah, road they, end. So I like how they did that. Yeah, they get out there and he's standing there and he's like, I should have known the rest of the world doesn't exist. Because through the entire movie, he's talking about how he just he's not even talking about how he wants to see the rest of the world. He's just expressing his displeasure or not just he's bored with buffalore is that buffalo buffalora oh he's bored with buffalora he's bored with even with killing the zombies like he's so annoyed it just seems like he's only annoyed by the zombies not really ever troubled by them and Com um, completely and like he's trying to tell the mayor hey we've got a problem yeah like but he also in the cemetery and like <laughs> when the mayor finally bites it and he's like trying to escape, you know, he's like, I'm the mayor. Don't tell me. And he's like, get back in your grave immediately. Like you need to set an example. Yeah. And the mayor's like, no, oh, I'm going over the wall. So he just finally takes him out. But 
there's a lot of I think even a lot of the zombies in this film are adorable and one of the differences to point out too is like they can speak they can some of you them. know and you don't see that in, in every in every zombie film uh, some of them some of them seem mindless uh, but certain ones do just seem like they are themselves but dead like the there's the one girl the mayor's daughter that dies and Nagi oh forms, Valentina yeah Valentina Nagi forms a relationship a very innocent relationship it could go kind of gross but instead it's just like he keeps her head because she's decapitated in his broken tv set and you know mm-hmm. they they she sings to Nagi and they just seem mm-hmm. to be having a great time but then there's others like there's the troop of boy scouts that also die yes the boy scouts on uh that were a part of the the uh, bus wreck, and and that was actually part of Valentina's crash too, because she was on the motorcycle with uh, Claudia. Yeah, so the 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 Boy Scouts can't speak, or they don't. Like most of the zombies don't speak. Just the mayor and Valentina, I think, are the ones. And well, the husband when he first so when when she comes into his life for the first time uh, with the first funeral of her husband dies, so she's now a widow, and she's coming in to visit him and grieve. When they finally get at it, like on his grave, which yeah. is a super poor choice, you see his face on the picture on the monument, like turns into a frown. <laughs> I love that. And then, well, um, then he like rises and bites her. But before he bites her, he says, "That's life," and he totally takes a chunk out of her neck. So he kind of spoke too. You're right. You're right. It it happens every once in a while, but it it there's also just as many or maybe more that that don't speak about that that scout crash so they have this big mass funeral for all these scouts and the and claudia and or claudio and valentina and claudio is just buried under like the the melted scorched wreckage of his motorcycle (laughs) yeah as they're carrying the coffins and there's a procession there's a bunch of living scouts and they're singing a song about how they shouldn't have gone on that sleep that camping trip and yep i don't know if i'd ever noticed the lyrics before but it seems like oh then never should i uh have gone on the boy scout picnic oh that's right that's right yeah and yeah and it was interesting that they did that funeral for everyone all at once because there were so many people involved in in those accidents yeah it is very very odd but also part of what like that that choice to sing that song is not anywhere close to being a realistic choice. And so that makes me wonder how much of this movie is actually in his head. Not Maybe not in his head, like he's hallucinating everything, but just like he's seeing all these little things or he's just adding all these flourishes to reality that aren't really there. Like, is, is everybody else hearing the song about how they shouldn't have gone on the Boy Scout picnic? Or is that just his narrative? Yeah, and... You know, then there's a like the killings. When he kills people, like how many of those are those people are dead? Did he actually kill them? Or is he like fantasizing about it? Are all of the women that come back actually she? Or are they just other women and he's projecting something onto them? And he's putting her face, her face onto them. I don't, you know, I've thought about that a little bit and she always seems to return his feelings. Like, well, didn't you know I'm already in love with you? But we find out. That could also be, again, his narrative too. Yeah, and you're right. because she she returns his feelings at least the second time she comes back when she's the mayor's secretary but then because she asks him to marry marry her but then the catch with that one though which is worth mentioning is that she could only be in love with an impotent man 
yeah and that time around and so he goes through all these lengths to make that happen for himself and then she's like oh just kidding i'm into sex now there is a rumor in town that francesco is impotent and every time he goes into town there's that there's those those punks that yet are that he ends up killing later are there and they just constantly tease him about what a small penis he has and that he can't use it anyway and that's really weird and then you find out later he tells nagi that he made that rumor up himself uh, because he he what's the line he said it was a really i thought it was a really nice line where he says like like being different is great and that the farther away they or the more different you are the farther away they seem or something like that i i, I should have really written it down so he started this rumor and that's kind of what brings her to him that's what bring or he obviously sees her and is immediately back in love but that's what causes her to return the affections is that she has heard that he's impotent and of course he's lying lying so he goes to the doctor to try and get himself castrated and the doctor which that scene is great because the doctor is like i won't do this i'm not going to do this and then he's like fine i'll just fuck it i'll just give you a shot i'm not going to cut it off i'm just going to give you a shot um it'll make you make it you know for about a month you can be like this and it's very mad scientist there's like a, a lightning storm he's sweating bullets like he's you know trying to make this happen for the guy. And then she's like, oh, just kidding, you know? Um, and also I was gonna say uh, the name of the cemetery is Resurrectus Cemetery. Yes. And yes. so it's for those who will rise again, the returners. So I thought that was a cool thing to mention. And also that his hobby is crossing out the names of the dead out of old phone books. He, yes, I thought that was, uh, because he gets really, really angry at Nagi when Nagi throws the phone book into the fire when they're burning the trash. And yep. he, he's, he, he talks about how he's only ever read two books in his life. One of them he never finished and the other is the phone book. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so he does, he crosses out and he, he's like, he's mad because Nagi, he just goes, well, Nagi only says no, but he seems to understand a lot more out of it because his response is, well, so what if we have the new ones? We still have keep the old ones these are classics because clearly i mean he's got the names crossed out of everybody that he's he's buried yeah i thought that that was a uh you know a bit of a touch and like some of the stuff in this film it's it's so layered that if you watch it a couple times you'll pick up on more stuff like seems like every time she comes into the picture there's a full moon and a silhouette and you see that a lot throughout the film is kind of a theme and it's it's really visually pleasing it sets the mood you even see it with Claudia when he rises from the dead and he busts out on his bike and the other girlfriend is, is chasing after him and um, he has a snack out of her. And, you know, she's like, she's like people during the pandemic. I shall be eaten by whomever I please. Yeah. And he's, he's eating Maybe. her. And finally, Francesco is just like, okay, you're both done. Bam. Shoots them both, buries them together. Um, but when she comes into the picture, um there tends to be like this full moon it's like the first time they have sex on her husband's grave and his face totally changes into a giant frown which is that part is so funny to me um when she returns um as the assistant uh and they're talking i think that's the one time you don't see it the third time it happens again but they have this this full moon and these silhouettes like throughout the film before certain scenes and i i like how they tied that all together yeah, this movie this movie is really the best example. Uh, well, this movie is really the best example of what makes Italian horror movies so great is that in Italian horror, it is so often 
style over substance. And yet, in in the best of the Italian movies, it the the style become becomes the substance. The style becomes the substance, and uh, the two work in such great like in great concert. And this is, I think. I mean, 94, this is like the tail end. I think this is when Italian horror started to kind of like decline. That industry started to um, started to dwindle a little bit. And this might be the last like great gasp of that kind of genre. The Meaning that the two movies we picked today are kind of like at opposite poles in a few respects. Like so much of the imagery in it is every moment in this movie is beautiful looking. The camera is always moving really elegantly. Even the gross stuff in it is gross in a way that is gorgeous. Although like some of the... That's a great way to put it. When I said visually pleasing, I think you just encapsulated what I was trying to verbalize with that. The thing I would I would say is not visually pleasing to me is how much very thick drool there is in this movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like when Nagi vomits and then like uh, Valentina is in the TV and she has this little spit up like drool thing. And there's something very viscous looking about it all that it, it shows up in movies around this time. I, I kind of see there's, there's like there's a lot of movies, I think, in the 90s. I kind of remember having this like drool or like not or just kind of like bile that really grossed me out. And there's just something about the way it looked in movies in the early 90s that I I do not like at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love I love Valentina and Nagi together. It's just, it's such an innocent relationship. Valentina's character um, reminds me of Veruca Salt. She's very spoiled. Um, she's like, daddy, daddy, buy him for me. She sees Nagi as like this novelty. When they first meet, he gets excited. He throws up on her. She falls backwards and Claudia whisks her up on uh, his motorcycle and takes her away. Then after she passes, Nagi just like innocently just like decides to take her head out of the glass coffin she's in. She's in this gorgeous glass coffin. And what's what's with the mayor like trying to get sympathy photos with his dead daughter? Like that's another what the fuck. Because he's like trying to campaign and his daughter just passed. So he's like, oh, let's dig her up so I can get some sympathy photos with her. Yeah, oh, for I, me, I've lost someone. It's like, what the hell? Like, it's another one of those what the fuck <laughs> moments in the movie. And he finally hears her speaking. He's like, where's her head? And he goes and finds her. And of course, he's like, no, you're not going to marry Nagi. I'm not going to stand for this. And he, she's gone. She's kind of going sour. So yeah, she's starting to smell. She's got the, the dribble. And um, he's just saying, not as long as there's a breath in my body, are you going to marry Nagi? And so she just kind of flies out of the TV <laughs> with mouth open more spittle and just latches onto his neck and takes him out. And it's funny to me because the same promotional photographers that were going to shoot him for his campaign, they like awkwardly come in there with the investigator and the dead bodies. And they're still like, they, they started taking photos. They're like, uh, okay. So they're awkwardly still taking these campaign photos. Like he's dead. She's dead. Like, cause he wanted these sympathy photos. So I thought that was a what the fuck and super funny moment. Yeah, it was very funny. And another another example of the style and the substance coming together because there's a, a shot as her head flies at her father to like get, to take a chunk out of his neck where the camera is in inside Valentina's mouth filming out. And you think like they've had to make an oversized 
jaw, tongue, and teeth to put around the camera to get this one shot. And the shot is one, maybe two seconds long. And it looks really cool. But you think about just how many hours had to go into constructing that shot to get two seconds of film in the movie. And this movie is full of that all the way through. Everything in it looks looks really great and so inventive. And like when death shows up and it's mm-hmm. it's like that tall, I guess, puppet. Like there, there's probably somebody inside of it, but it's still puppety the way it's moving. It looks amazing. It's so cool looking. And, you know, another thing I really like about it, I mean, even down to like some of the tackier details where the little wisps or the the blue flame spirits, they're, they're hovering over them while they're, they're going at, at, in the cemetery. And um, you can see the strings that are like holding them in the air, right? Yeah, like they're, they're on, they're actually, it looks kind of like they're on wires, like stiff wires that are just being yeah. waved in front of the camera. I still like that better than the computer generated graphics of today. So that's like another thing I really appreciate about this movie is a lot of it is in, in physical form. It's not computer generated. So even some of the effects where you're like, it's cheesy in an adorable way, but you're seeing them on strings, these fool's flames um, dancing around them in the graveyard. And it's just, it's, it's, I don't know, it adds another level to me of just some things I appreciate, just some details I appreciate in that film. Yeah, the handmade aspect of this movie is terrific. Because this, a couple, just a couple of years later, a lot of this stuff would have been done with CGI. But 93, yeah. 93 in Italy, like it, it hadn't quite caught on the way that it was starting to in America. I imagine an American version of this movie, they would have been very early CGI. And yet, man, it, you're right. You can see the strings there, but the handmade nature of it really is appealing. That This is like, I mean, I don't want to like, I don't want to go overboard in praise of this movie, which I do, I do love, but I'm, I, I don't want to just sound like I'm being hyperbolic. But the look of the movie is great. Like it, it is kind of a platonic ideal of just how, I don't know, how I guess style and substance can merge is what I keep saying. And I keep bringing up Terry Gilliam as well. Like there's a, the camera movements and everything can seem a lot like, I mean, think of something from Brazil or, or Fisher King or like the way that fan, the fantastical elements intrude on the quote unquote reality of the movie. Yeah, there's just this balance going on with with all these aspects of the film that this one really does tug at my heartstrings. And I don't know, I that's one reason I chose this one. I just thought, you know, and this this is also, you know, with the resurrected cemetery for those who will rise again. And they're just coming out of this area here so that it's a little bit different than some of the other zombie films where it's a pandemic or an epidemic. And there are people who are um, infecting each other by biting them and you know it spreads and spreads this is like they're confined to this cemetery if you're buried there within seven days you will rise again it also doesn't matter if they already have a head wound because i think he shoots she the first time around when she reanimates he shoots her in the ossuary that she was so fond of he shoots her in the head through the scarf which like when they had their first kiss they were kissing through this fabric because she still wanted to remain loyal to her first husband so when he first shoots her in the head, there's that fabric between them again. Yeah. So, well, and then she comes back again. So even though she's been shot in the head, which in your typical zombie situation, they're going to be done after that. 
um, she still comes back because he buries her. So she comes back a second time. So I'm not, I, I meant to go back and look at it because I thought he had shot her in the head as well. And yet he's, he's kind of talking when she comes back the second time, he's, he's kind of like really distraught and he's talking mostly to himself, but I think Nagi is there. And he's saying that the first time that she came back, she hadn't actually been dead. The doctor made a mistake and she had just passed out. And so when she woke up, she was still alive and he shot her, but he said, I shot her with my eyes closed. So I didn't hit her in the head. Like I, I needed to, but it, I thought it showed her get hit and then she collapsed backwards. That's what I, I thought too. But yeah. maybe, maybe he just shot and it like glanced off. Like it didn't, it killed her, but it didn't do the brain damage that it needs to do. I'm not, I don't know how that, Oh, and then he buries her maybe. So maybe even then she wasn't dead and she suffocated under the dirt. I mean, yeah, it's just like they, they'll just, you know, they'll come back once they're buried in that ground. And so I kind of like that take on it as well, because it's, it's a little bit different than a lot of the other, like the Romero films that you see, for instance, um, yeah. the method of spread, the method of infection, the method of contracting or, or turning into a zombie happens a little bit differently. Because he, he, he does say specifically that being bitten can't change you because he gets bitten and Nagi. Yeah, like, she bites it. He's fine. He's like, you know. And, and Nagi is sitting there like with the sharpened shovel at him. Like he's going to, he's just waiting for a chance to hit him over the head. And mm -hmm. he, he yells at him like, being bitten doesn't change you. You know that. It, or being yeah, bitten so in that, in that instance, it's, it's very much different than a lot of the other films that we see where a bite eventually kills you when you turn. And this is just, well, if you're buried in that cemetery, you're going to come back. And um, he starts installing the barbed wire because the mayors won't listen to him. Mayor one, mayor two, neither one. They're just like, yeah, we don't really, you know, we want you to sign this waiver because we don't really want to get into this with anyone. We don't want our town to be laughingstock. So, but he's installing this barbed wire so that people can't get out <laughs> Yeah. as the second mayor rolls up and he's wanting him to sign that waiver so that they don't have to look into it any further. They just don't really want the information out there. There is a a mirror there in that he is keeping people in the cemetery and that his his life's work, basically, that's what he does. He buries people and then he, he kills them again and buries them again. And he's keeping, sorry, he's keeping everybody inside this area, inside this cemetery, which is kind of the mirror of him when he decides to finally get out that he can't. You know, the movie ends with that image of the snow globe. Um, they're not like in a snow globe, literally, but there is an end to the road. The road just leaves out, leads out to nowhere and drops away. And there's a big cliff. Or, you don't even see what's underneath it. You just see off in the distance, there's a lake. And what I, one thing that I, I'm curious about is it clearly visible in the distance there is a road and another town past that that broken road that they're sitting on and it, it did make but they me, have no access to it they they don't you you could have they could walk back to the end of the tunnel and like climb down but you're right they that that's ridiculous but i'm wondering if like if that was left there intentionally or if they just couldn't get a shot that didn't show like maybe they were just like we just want to show the mountains but we don't care if this town is in it or like, I didn't know if they... I always kind of thought as a teaser to what could be or to what's out there, but they just don't have access. 
you yeah. know, like, what do you want about if they, if they would have turned around and they would have found another way down into that ravine that they would have come into some other block where it's just like, now they're just in darkness or something. Like there's just yeah. the road ends there for them, but they kind of get this glimpse of like, what could be outside. Like they're so excited on the main, the road towards that tunnel. He like throws the key away, throws it out the window to the cemetery. Nagi finally speaks at that mo- moment where they realize they have to turn around. Like he hasn't said a, a real word throughout this entire film. But at the very end, when they realize that the road ends here, we're going to have to go back. Francesco realizes, you know, Nagi's been my best friend this whole time. Nagi's just like, take me home. And that's like all he says the entire movie. Which is very, I mean, it's very clear. It's a very, you know, like he speaks very clearly. And then Rupert Everett, Francesco, just goes, nah. Like the only thing that Nagi said. But that's another thing, like how much of this is in his mind? Because... Francesco has been reacting to Nagi as if he has been speaking entire sentences every time he says "na," nah. and then at the end, are we are we seeing more of what? Like, uh, I don't know. There's so many questions I have about this. And now I feel like I'm just like really going off on a limb. But are we seeing like has Nagi been speaking the entire time, and yet Rupert Everett just kind of has this thing where he's been like. Like, well, he's he's an imbecile and I'm interpreting what he's trying to say or or what? Like, or maybe I'm trying to be too literal about a movie that clearly at the end of this movie, it is abstract and metaphorical. And I, I maybe shouldn't be trying to dig too much into exactly what it means or what it would literally mean. I don't know. You could always take a break, not watch it for a while and keep some of that in your mind and then watch it again and see. Like, I found... I've seen this movie a million times, but um, knowing I was going to be discussing it on a podcast, obviously I'm going to be taking some notes of things I want to mention. And I noticed patterns and things that I hadn't before. So that's a really good, you know, if you're trying to see if there's like a different take or just different aspect on that, maybe just rewatching after a little bit and, and seeing, seeing what you think about that, because this definitely does have a lot of twists and turns and it's, it's kind of a mind fuck like him and Franco, you know, with the murders and, how much of this is in his head? He's talking to death. He's seeing seeing death in the cemetery rise out of rubble in this this burn pile that they have going. She, is she really looking like that every time or is she a different incarnation and he's just putting words in her mouth and a face on her that he recognizes? That would be an interesting thing to kind of come back to. I don't know. There's just so, there's a lot of great characters in this movie. And I think that there's some depth to be found there with all of them. Yeah, definitely, definitely one that I will not be waiting years again to watch like I did this time. I, I, like I said, I watched it and I was like, oh man, I can't believe I waited so long to see this again. This is, this movie is great. And I've actually watched a few Michele Suave films recently. I don't know if you've seen anything else that he directed. I think the big ones are Stage Fright and The Convent, or no, not The Convent, The Church, which was like demons three is where it was what it was called elsewhere yeah stage fright i've seen that one um i want to say i've seen demons three but that that was in another series of three right just like the zombie series which we'll probably talk about with um fulci demons is one of those series where there's a one movie and an official sequel to demons and then there's like half a dozen other movies that are calling themselves demons sequels elsewhere but they're completely unrelated like, I think the church was going to be a demon sequel and then they decided to not make it. They, they did something else, uh, but it still got called Demons 3 elsewhere. 
but it this is of the movies I've seen. He definitely they're they're worth watching. They're good. He definitely has a good eye and a good sense of humor. There's more of his movies I haven't seen, but this is for my money his masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, I really love this one. I think um, it wasn't that easy to find on DVD at first. It took me a while. Um, I bought this years ago, and this was one that I had to have because I knew, although I had seen it many times, I was going to want to watch it more and more. And it it's kind of comforting to me, um, in a way. I don't know. Well, I just really love this one, and I think it's got so many levels to it. Yeah. You know, speaking of comforting, we'll get to that. That'll be that's my feeling for the film we're going to be talking about next. But I can definitely see that for this. There's something very pleasing and comforting in that in this movie even though a lot of it was kind of meant to be kind of meant to be disturbing it was still in a way that i i really enjoyed watching or i found pleasure in watching so i i kept saying gilliam-esque we're talking about character gilliam i did not know until i was doing a little bit of research before recording that my michele suave actually did work as second unit director on a couple of terry gilliam films he was second unit director on The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yes, and, I love that. And then 20 years later, he was the second unit director on The Brothers Grimm. Which, that makes sense because there's some influence there for sure. Yeah. And in the in the middle, uh, in the late 90s, Michele, Michele Suave retired from the film industry. Um, his his son was terminally ill and he retired for a few years to care for him. And he, he's done a, a couple of things since he's worked a lot in Italian television since the early two thousands. He's done a couple of movies, but I didn't recognize them. I, I hadn't heard of them. So I might, I might check those out, but he had been talking a few years ago about doing a sequel to cemetery man. And I'm not sure I need one, but he, he seemed very excited about it, but that's never materialized. Oh, yeah. It, it, that's one of those things where I'd probably be like super hesitant. I'd be like, oh, man, I guess I'll go see it. But I'd be like, ah, don't mess with the original. Well, I don't way. know. And I'm sure that it would be more computer generated stuff by now. I mean, unless he's stuck with the old ways. So that always kind of ruins things for me a little bit. No, definitely. But I'm not even sure what they would do or, or where they would go with it. Because this this guy's story seems to be I mean, we have questions, but it seems to be wrapped up. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I could see is that they, they go back to the cemetery and maybe she she probably returns again. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they either find a way out or like, you know, he's been trying to get politics involved. He's been trying to draw people's attention to what's been happening in that cemetery. So maybe something like that happens or he gets found out for the murders or that's that's explained. But I think you're right in that at the end of this film, it really does seem final. Do you have anything more that you've got in your notes? Anything more you want to say about Cemetery Man? I think we've pretty much talked about everything and just, you know, I really, really love a lot of these characters and, and how they interact together. And it's a great movie. Definitely recommend it to anyone who is into um, zombie, uh, <laughs> zombie, zombie flicks and, um, and dark comedy. Definitely identify with Mrs. Caramundo too. I feel like when the pandemic is over and I can't really interact with people properly, I've become super socially awkward, like even more so. I'll be like, engineer, like just calling everyone engineer. It's gonna end up being my character when all this is over.
are Eliza, aren't you? Yes. My name is Emily. I've been looking for you. Go back to where you came from and hurry. Leave this place. Sixty years ago, everybody in this hotel disappeared. Every last person. Uh, considered by many to be Lucio Fulci's masterpiece, The Beyond follows Liza, Katrina McCall, as she renovates a dilapidated hotel she has recently inherited. Strange occurrences and mysterious deaths plague her efforts, however, and it turns out the hotel has been built upon one of the seven gateways to hell. Now, The Beyond is my pick today, and it is absolutely one of my favorite movies, although with the caveat that I know it is quite awful. But I enjoy the hell out of this movie. I have seen this movie maybe more than just about anything else. I, 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 I think there's a couple others ahead of it still. But no, I'm very familiar. I watch this movie all the time. And yet, <laughs> there's so much about this movie I don't understand. I cannot explain why things happen in this movie. To say it is surreal is maybe giving it more benefit or more, the, like more of a benefit of the doubt than it needs. It is almost literally just a collection of images dreamed up by Lucio Fulci and just put haphazardly on the screen. And I have to kind of tone down all of it, like let people know that this movie is kind of bad because otherwise I am just going to talk endlessly about how much I love all of it. <laughs> so I saw this movie. We, I've got a big story. I can get into it in a minute about the first time I saw this movie. But uh, how about you? Do you have any particular history with this one you know I want to say it was in the era of Frank and actually right around the time I met you in Anchorage that is when I started getting into Lucio Fulci in general my favorite film of his is Zombie 2 which has the epic zombie versus shark scene which was filmed with a real shark although I disagree with the way they did it that that was right around the time I started getting into uh, Fulci and um, I bought this one as part of the Gates of Hell trilogy and I actually accidentally mistakenly also bought Seven Doors of Death, um, yeah. which is the watered down American version, which I think is shorter, has a different soundtrack and um, obviously different names, Seven Doors of Death. Um, I also appreciate this movie a lot and I'm looking forward to hearing your take on it as it is one of your favorites. When I saw it today, because I never, I knew the Seven Doors of Death existed. I knew that it was edited down. I had never seen it before. Um, I know it's it's primarily the way you can find the movie on a lot of streaming services now, but I've never had any inclination. Just knowing it was edited and watered down, I was like, I don't need to see it. But today, when I learned that it had a new soundtrack, I I almost lost my mind. I was like, what the hell? Who would ever want to do that? Because The Beyond has one of my favorite soundtracks of all time, too. Uh, Fabio Fritzi. In fact, just... Almost, almost exactly a year ago, like a year and a week ago, I went and saw The Beyond with Fabio Fritzi perform, performing the uh, score live. 
And oh, that would have been amazing. It was amazing because I love this movie. I love the theme, the Voci uh, Nala. I, I, I don't know Italian, so I, I can't. My pronunciation on that is very bad. But it, it's such a, it was a great score. And it was great seeing it because he performs it live with a band instead of with, you know, the traditional instrument. I don't traditional isn't the right word for the soundtrack, but the instrumentation that the movie has is a bit different. And it was interesting seeing it, it like much more powerful with that music performed live. But um, that, that makes sense that you would have seen it around that time, because I know I know exactly when I saw this the first time I saw this in the theaters. Actually, I saw this at at the Capri. Oh, yeah. One of the places in Anchorage I'm so sad shut down years I ago. Miss it. I miss it more every day. I, I really do. I only saw like a handful of movies there in high school and college, and it closed in 2000. For people who are listening that aren't from Alaska, it was an ex-porn theater that by the 90s had kind of converted to mostly art house and second run stuff. It was tiny. It was in a strip mall. It was one screen. And I think it fit maybe like a hundred people in it. Do you think that's about right? Maybe about. Yeah. It, but it, and it was kind of like, even when it was clean, it looked a little bit dirty. It was just like a bit run down, but it was, it was such a great place. It had like a really, really awesome lobby. It was a really fun place. Like I, I do miss it. I mean, there, there's Beartooth now and the guy who programs for Beartooth or used to, I don't know if he still does, is the owner of the capri so he 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 did move on to a you know a pretty good position as well but i just missed that place yeah i'm sad that a lot of places like that just and other small businesses too like uh retail that just didn't make it in in anchorage that always kind of it hurts to see a lot of the smaller venues go and we're seeing it a lot with the pandemic too oh yeah um, I, I know bars I... and restaurants are hit so hard because there's not really any way people can come in there and enjoy the services without taking off their mask and you know, doing all these things. So that, that's been really, really hard to see happen too. Um, there was a program called Save Our Stages. I don't know where that's at right now, but it was, uh, a lot of it is you're, you're writing in um, to, your, to your state and, and to ask, you know, there's this funding available, but to try to get it to a lot of these places, because once they close, you know, we want them to still be able to be there when the pandemic is over. But in the meantime, these theaters that are shut down, I mean, they still have utilities that are due they still have maintenance that needs to be done even though like no one is coming in there to enjoy it they still have expenses and i just think that's really sad and and i hope that some of these places can survive it and i hope some assistance is freed up to to help the the people who are caretakers of these places keep them going so that when it's safe again they're still there for us to go back to yeah no i i really hope that as well and it's it's incredibly distressing to see just how many things are, are closing and, and not coming back and like really great places. But then we're, we're just going to, you know, always have Best Buy and Walmart and whoever else target, I guess, Amazon. Gah. Trying to use right. Amazon a lot less. <laughs> to get back to the beyond. Um, I saw this in September, I think, of 98. It was re-released. It was the first time the uncut version had been released in America. And it was... Um, Quentin Tarantino's Rolling Thunder division, like he he had a label, small label, he just released a, a handful of films under, and The Beyond was one of them. And I think I, I think Frank would have been there. I, I know I went and saw it with Eric. Uh, I dragged a couple of friends to go see it. I'd never seen it before. 
I just saw a listing of it in the Anchorage press and it sounded insane, this movie. And we went there and there was only one other person in the audience the night that we went. And he was sitting up front or close to up front. He actually got up and complained. And we went and spoke to the, the guy at the Capri. And he said, yeah, that guy complained about you because we were laughing too much during this movie. And <laughs> it is it was definitely a movie like we weren't MST3King it. We weren't like cracking jokes and yelling them in the theater. We were just laughing because the movie is so ridiculous. It, it has ridiculous dialogue. Things happen randomly for no reason. Uh, the acting, it, like all Italian films, it's kind of been redubbed. Uh, they they primarily, like a lot during this period, they would shoot without sound and then just ADR everything later. So the, the dialogue is terrible and is performed kind of awkwardly as well. And we were just laughing. It was so silly. And then what happened with my evolution with this movie is when it came out on dvd a few years later i bought it and invited all of my friends to come over to my apartment and watch it and a few of them came over and we watched it and we did the same thing where we just laughed our way through it and then the next night a couple of other friends came over that hadn't seen the movie and i was like i'm gonna watch it again if you want to and we watched it same thing the next week i would put this dvd in after work or just whenever just and I would fall asleep on the couch. I would just lay down on the couch like I'm going to bed and I'd put this DVD in and it would be kind of like my post-sleep hip, post-sleep, post-sleep, pre-sleep hypnosis. I would just like zone out and drift off to this movie and it's a very hypnotic score. After, after doing this for six times, the movie actually started to scare me, which is maybe an embarrassing thing to say, there's a couple of moments in the movie where I was very unnerved. And I'll tell you specifically the one that did it for me is the scene when Emily is at the hotel talking to Liza and she immediately is like, who's here? There's somebody here. I feel a presence. And she runs out and Liza closes her eyes and plays that scene, like just remembers that scene. And you just see the a shot of Emily and her seeing eye dog because Emily's, Emily's blind mm -hmm. running out of the hotel and there's no sound and then another shot of another pair of footprints kind of rushing forward in these very short steps and that sound is very clear and very echoey though and I don't know what it was about it but that scene really scared me like after watching this movie for six times or whatever just in my apartment at one in the morning alone and laying on the couch i don't know what it was about it but this movie has just constantly been like i go back to this movie all the time and i'm always it, like i'm not saying it scares me now but it's just like i'm always finding stuff in it that i love sorry, sorry i just kind of like went on and on there for a bit but <laughs> no i love i love hearing your take on it and i'm actually kind of surprised that for you this was a comforting film so that is that is a you know kind of because Cemetery Man was very comforting to me and that one is more campy and lighthearted. This one is in a very unintentional way, I feel, with this Lucio Fulci film. But it is so ridiculous. And one of the things I love about it is, <laughs> as in all of his films, there's a lot of eye trauma, for one. Like the eye splintering, the eye, you know, there's a lot of eye trauma. And everything is so over-dramatized with these. Like the tarantulas, when they're coming in the library, like when he's looking for the blueprints. And the blueprints fade away. 
Mm-hmm. And these tarantulas are, are climbing on this guy and um, it's, they're so loud. And I'm like, dude, I have never had a neighbor that, uh, that has had like pet tarantulas that I've had to be like, can you please tell them to keep it down? Like, they're not really what I consider a loud animal, but the way that they, <laughs> he has them coming at him, just, I, they're, the, that's one aspect of Fulci films that I just really enjoy. Like with his film, The Black Cat, same thing. Um, just really, really over-dramatized, really drawn out, focusing like when there's, if there's acid eating faces, which happens a couple times in this film. So much um, acid in this movie. So much acid in this movie. And and with the the epic soundtrack of uh, Fabio Fritzi um, in the background with that, and it just intensifies. That's kind of a theme in a lot of Fulci's films that that I really like. For me, that's not comforting, but it's enjoyable. <laughs> Well, I will tell you right now that it was almost entirely the soundtrack that got it to me because I loved the soundtrack so much and I didn't own it at the time. And so to hear the music, I would just put the DVD in. And also because at this time it was comforting in a way that it was just like, this movie is ridiculous. I am watching it and I am having the remembered fun of hanging out with my friends and just laughing at all of this ridiculous stuff. And so, you know, I'm just at my house and I'm like, I'm going to put this in because it, it was such a good time that uh, it kind of slowly became comforting to me. And maybe not, I don't know if I would say comforting, I guess I, I, I would, because it was kind of like helping me get to sleep, but it was just like, it was very hypnotic in a way, because this movie is very dreamlike in a way that a lot of movies that you could call dreamlike aren't dreamlike because this is a lot of things that have kind of a, a, a tiniest, the tiniest thread of connectivity between scenes where it is almost literally just this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. It's all unconnected, but there's a through line, a little tiny through line, like in your dream where it's always a jumble of disconnected scenes that your consciousness is still your your subconscious is still like connecting you're you're in in the middle of the dream it doesn't feel like it's all disconnected it 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 makes sense to you but then when you step back and you're like well that didn't make sense at all that's kind of what this movie is like very much so um i don't i don't know if we want to say anything about the ending yet it's very relative to that so if we we want to we're, we're jumping all over the place it's okay um, so definitely at the end where, and this is where you see the most actual zombies that are kind of coming at you. I feel like for the, for most of this film, a lot of the zombies that you see are more in a spiritual sense. Like they still have a character tied to them that has intent with that person. They're not after your flesh. Um, specifically it's uh, Schweig, uh, the artist that was originally killed there, which his sacrifices purportedly what opened up the, uh, the portal to this seventh to one of the seven gateways to hell. So you have him reappearing throughout. And obviously he's the oldest one because what it's like 1927 Louisiana, right? Is, is where it opens. Correct. Um, that's another reason I kind of have, I, I do like this film a lot too, is because Louisiana has always held a place in my heart. Um, my grandparents still have some land out there and I was actually married. Um, I say it's a former life, but um, when I was married, I was married uh, in Louisiana in New Orleans. And so I've always had kind of an affinity for that place. And so I really like the setting for this as well, even though it's an Italian film, um, it is actually set in Louisiana. And 
as far as like the dreamlike states and kind of tying everything back, I think I got off track there for a second, but you see these kind of spiritual zombies in a way. There's not very many of them when the movie's first getting going. There's mysterious deaths happening. The plumber, Joe, is working downstairs in the basement and obviously he succumbs. I thought it was odd that the wife went to the morgue and was cutting the back of his clothes like a funeral director would to dress him on site because usually that's something a funeral director would do. And that's like the morgue. That's like where they're IDing, identifying the cause of death. So she's already bringing the clothes in to dress him and she's doing it herself. Yeah. And leaving the daughter out in the hallway. There's, there's not a lot of realism to this movie. Yeah. So there's just like some things with that. Once they finally come back to the hospital more towards the end where the, the doctor is just like, Hey, I'm a man of science. I don't, I don't believe in this portal to hell shit. He reads, he reads the book, um, the Avon book. And um, he's like, there's got to be an explanation. Let's go back to the hospital. Well, that is when you really see the dead take over and you see like these hordes of zombies that are, that are coming for you. And then they get separated when they finally rejoin they leave the door to the morgue downstairs in the hospital. And where are they? They're back at the hotel. They're back at the base to the hotel, which then leads them. They go finally go to the end of that. And it leads them. And that's how it ends when, when they actually are in hell. And of course their eyes are now white. They've been to the beyond they've been, they've been to hell. So there's a lot of dreamlike states to that because if they're supposed to be in this hospital right now with this purpose to get some information and, what actually ends up happening is they go through one door, they're right back where they started. So that just to tie it into that dreamlike state, that was probably a little bit of a babble, but maybe you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, I, I, I do know what you're trying to say. And that ending, I mean, it's a great ending and it really, without it, without that ending, so much of this movie could, for me, have just been, it, it would have, I don't think it would have maybe surpassed the let's laugh at the silliness of this movie phase that I had with it because the ending really ties that together. What, whatever narrative threads might be in, in the movie, it kind of ties them together in a way that retroactively kind of lend, lends power to the rest of the film. Once you know where it's going, it, it, even though like, I, I still think a lot of it doesn't quite make sense. Like it was a few, I mean, I've watched this movie many times and if i were to try to explain why things happen not just like what happens but why things happen at a certain point i'm going to hit a brick wall i don't know i'm just going to be like um i'm not entirely sure it was just lucio fulci had the idea like why does when the guy goes to get the plans for the hotel to the blueprints why do they disappear what what is being hidden that because he looks at the bl- the blueprints and is like, oh my god! And then, you know, everything they fade away. Then yeah, then then this then he falls off a ladder, and but it's also like, why did he just fall? Like it didn't even make sense that he fell. Like nothing scared him. He was just like, oh shit, vertigo, yeah. and just like collapses and dies. So, so then yeah, and like I just don't understand why they fade away from the blueprints. And that's the scene with the spiders because yeah. He, the noisy tarantulas, the, tarantula. <laughs> the loudest, fakest spiders you're ever going to see. There's a couple of yes. real ones for some close-ups, but my God, they're just, they're, they're plastic spiders without any articulation and they're just being, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't, they don't like bite. They chew on his face. They like, this is another 
eye trauma scene because they oh, like. Oh, I know. They pull his eyes eye out, and you you can see the glue and the makeup, and it's it's not realistic, but it's also. You know, I still prefer it over to computer generated graphics, though. I definitely. still prefer that. I, I, <laughs> I I like the effects in this movie, even even though they're very cheap. I will say I don't like the look of a lot of the zombies, um, particularly the plumber when he comes back and he's just like, it, he, the, it looks like he's just wearing a plaster mask with hair taped on it. I, I don't like that kind of like bulgy look that a lot of Italian zombie movies have, like, like almost like wet plaster, I think. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And also he had just been to the morgue, so he, he had already had... I mean, you can see what they did to him too. So he's a little bit altered already. Yeah, and that that that's that's fine. I just meant like around the face thing. Really, I, I don't quite like, but um, but it's kind of the the mark of Lucio Fulci is that Mo- Lucio Fulci never never met a special effect that looked too cheap to film in loving close up and bright bright lighting, <laughs> like. I think of Don't Torture a Duckling. Did you ever see that one? I don't know that I have. Okay. It, 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 Did it have another name? Uh, don't Torture Donald Duck, but I don't think it's ever been known by that here. Okay. Um, so there's a scene where a guy is like chased off of or he falls off of a cliff and he hits his face on like almost every rock on the way down. It, it's little more than like a department store mannequin that they put makeup on it looks so fake but they show it so many times and that is what i think of when i think of fulci is because he doesn't care how cheap or how fake the effect is going to look he is going to just like show you as much of that as you can take (laughs) yeah um i actually always really appreciated his special effects like i'm going to go back to zombie 2 again because it's a really good example there's the ridiculous zombie versus shark scene and once they get to the island and there's a lot of undead, the, a lot of them are very aged because some of them actually climb up from the grave as well. And in that, there's a lot of maggots and a lot of just like aging decay. And I really like what he did with that too. And of course, in that movie, there's tons more eye trauma. Yeah, that's, that's a staple. A lot of screaming on the way to the eye trauma where it's just like, don't be so dramatic lady it's just a splinter god and then her eye is just like completely the viscous fluid coming out um is pretty disgusting but i really actually like his i enjoy his special effects on all levels (laughs) no i'm not i'm not disparaging it like the eye trauma stuff that is a staple of italian horror films like if you're if you want to watch an italian horror movie you've got to be ready for somebody's eyes are going to be gouged or poked or a splinter is going to go into them or like, like in the case of opera, the needles underneath the eyelids. I, I, I do like his effects. Like a lot of me here is just trying to kind of like temper expectations for how much I just want to gush about this movie that I want people listening that may not have seen it to know I like to maybe not expect a masterwork, even though I think it is that, that it, it's not really going to conform to what you expect. Like some of the effects look very cheap. And then you have other effects like when Schweik is crucified in the beginning and the nails go into his arm, that looks really unpleasant. It looks painful. It looks like, wow, that looks kind of real. Or the shot when Joe's daughter, I can't remember if she's given a name, 
um, red-haired Jill. Jill when she is Jill. shot. So it, like she hears her mother screaming after like going in to put the, the burial suit on Joe. And, and the acid just like randomly ends up on her. Like nothing really happens. She's nothing. just like screams and then she's on the ground and now the acid's just like, oh. <laughs> yeah. And that that I think is kind of a cool effect because they, they used real sulfuric acid on a fake head made of wax and clay, which made it look like it was actually like smearing and melting as the acid was falling on it. And I love how the music just like picks up as they're focusing in on this. And it's not like you just see that and just recognize, okay, someone's face is being eaten with acid. It really focuses in on it. And then this pool of foamy blood and tissue, but then the music just really, really picks up there. Yeah. And so at the scene, this is the last we see of uh, Jill for a while. And then there's a funeral of Jill's mom and Jill is walking away from it. And we get a close up look at her. And she has the pale eyes that are a sign of somebody who has seen the beyond. So we know there's something going on with her. And she doesn't show up again until the end of the movie. Like the characters don't know that there's something going on with her until suddenly she attacks. And David Warbeck, uh, the actor's name, uh, the doctor, David Warbeck shoots her. And that shot of her getting shot in the head, it, it, it's one of the more memorable in this movie because it happens so quickly, but it's also, that's a fake head that looks real for the quick glimpse that you get of it. And when the, it is just completely like blown away, it, it's a very shocking moment. And it, yeah. And it's also a child death too. Yes. So yeah. throw on that, you know, and yeah, that one was pretty graphic. And I remember seeing, thinking something was going to be up because Emily still tried to help, you know, she'd been obviously been to the beyond. She was blind. She was still trying to help Liza this whole time. So when I knew that Jill had somehow been to the beyond, I assume it was when she was in the morgue and all that happened with her mom, because we see how things kind of tie together. So she's somehow been to the beyond. I didn't necessarily think that was going to make her uh, a villain in the rest of the movie. So I wasn't actually really sure what to expect when I saw she'd been there because because, you know, Emily was still good intention and still trying to help. So I was kind of wondering about that. And then as soon as she turned on Liza, I was like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. So. Emily in particular is a character that I, I, I enjoy her scenes the most, I think. And I enjoy what goes on with her character the most. It is the most kind of like traditionally spooky, I think, in that. Liza is seeing and interacting with Emily a lot. And um, David Warbeck, I just keep calling him his actor name. <laughs> uh, the doctor, like, doesn't I just believe. call him Dr. John. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so Dr. John doesn't believe that there's anybody even there. Like, he says he knows everybody in the town. The house that, uh, em that Emily was living at has been abandoned for years. And so he breaks into the house. <clears throat> and we have, we have been inside that house. Liza has been inside that house. But Dr. John breaks in and it's an abandoned house. Like it's empty and it's completely run down. He also finds the book of Avon in there that Liza had mentioned. So Emily, we find out, has been released from the afterlife, from the beyond. And it, I'm not sure if it, I mean, it, it's, it's in the title or the alternate title. It is one of the gates of hell. But there's a scene where she's in the house with her, just her and the dog. And it cuts to a larger 
like a shot from up on the ceiling and she is surrounded by all of the ghosts, like these dead, the people that we've seen die so far in the movie. She starts screaming about how she doesn't want to be taken back. She did what they asked her to do. And I'm not sure exactly what they asked her to do other than just maybe, because she just tries to warn Liza not to go into room 36, not to do all this stuff with the gates of hell. But then, you know, her, they, her dog, they possess her dog, I guess her dog turns on her and bites her throat out. I did have a point to this. I can't remember what it was, <laughs> but uh, I, I really enjoy like her parts of the movie, but it, it does make me wonder like, what is the point here? What is going on? Because um, one of the ghosts that's, that visits her is Schweik. And I didn't notice it was Schweik until I had seen this movie a few times because it's a different actor playing him, but they made him, like they fired the actor and decided to just make that actor look like a zombie with a lot of zombie makeup on for the rest of the scene. So they hired somebody else to take over. And I didn't realize for a while that that, that was supposed to be the same guy. But what is, like his sacrifice opens the gate to hell and he had been trying to keep it closed. And I'm not, I'm not sure what his goal is. I'm not sure if there is a goal. It's just a bunch of like kind of spooky stuff. Like they're, I guess, trying to just spread hell on earth, I guess. That was kind of what I gathered from it. Um, like when he was alive, you know, he was, he was like a gatekeeper in a sense. Like he knew what was going on. They think he's a warlock. The townspeople crucify him and randomly also have acid. Um, I, I think it's and... supposed to be quicklime, maybe. I don't know what. It, maybe. It, it... Yeah, that one was a little bit, uh, that one was opaque. So that one was a little, same effect bubbling fizzing flesh and as he keeps returning i don't know if it's because he's been to the beyond and so now he's turned in a sense so he's playing on their team now that kind of a situation well, but there was a continuity issue i was going to ask about and maybe maybe i've never seen this clearly enough so i thought in the beginning so the hotel itself is called the seven doors hotel and I thought in the beginning, the townspeople took him down to the basement, crucified him with the, and then the quick lime or, or acid and sealed him in the wall. And that's how Joe comes to die. That's what I thought. Cause Joe is down there tinkering with the plumbing and the wall is, is weeping. And so he's trying to get back there and that's how he goes. But then later the crucifixion nails are actually in room 36, which is where he stayed. So the the place where he he died i wasn't super clear on because i thought that they took him from room 36 and brought him to the basement and sealed him in down there yeah that's that that's very <laughs> um i i had not noticed that actually i'm kind of embarrassed but you're right because all we see of when joe dies is like a hand comes out and grabs his face and of course pokes one of his eyes out um mm -hmm. We don't see what does that, right? We just kind of are assuming it's Schweik. I think we do have a glimpse into his silhouette that's still in the crucifixion position, I thought. Uh, like I a, I actually, because you see the hand come out. Yeah, hmm. I don't actually... I, that's an interesting one because I wasn't sure if I jumbled it around in my head because this movie does jump around a lot from like different location to different location with seemingly connections that wouldn't be there. 
So when Joe comes back and he's in room 36 in the bathtub and kills Martha, which again, isn't like a a flesh hungry zombie. It's like he, he just murders her and puts, you know, another eye injury. Here's this nail. It's one of the crucifixion nails, but that's room 36. And I thought the rest of it took place in the basement. Yeah. I, I don't know. Cause I always just assumed that he had been crucified in room 36 because that's where the nails are. But you're right. Like, what's he doing down in the basement then? Maybe because they sealed him in. I mean, they they bricked him up. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess I now is a good. But maybe room 36 is a link to the basement, which is the portal to hell. I mean, the hospital is a link to the basement, which is a portal to hell. So why couldn't room 36 be as well? Yeah, true. I should say now is a good enough time to bring up, I guess, Larry Ray, who was a production manager and assistant on this film, um, said in an interview that there was never a completed script on set while they were filming, that Fulci only carried around a three-page story treatment and would just make up stuff on the fly as he was filming. Oh, well, that makes sense then. Yeah, so <laughs> this this movie it probably doesn't, like, it's not going to go hold up under very, very heavy scrutiny. And of course he has said that he, he kind of wanted it to be, you know, dreamlike and disassociated. And that he was just like, he, he had the idea. He liked the idea of a hotel where every room was haunted in kind of a different way. Like he just had, had this idea. So it, it all, it is all just kind of like whatever he thought was cool. I think there was even a story in one of the interviews I read about how he just like, came up with the idea to have all the spiders attack like on the fly, which is maybe why they're not the most realistic. Maybe they couldn't find like a bunch of trained spiders on the day of (laughs) attack, vicious attack spiders. Yeah. Uh, Um, I love how loud they are though. Like just the sound of their little feet. Like, yeah. And they're, they're squeaking. They're like screaming. Yeah. It's, it's great. (laughs) So weird. I want to, I should also mention the, original ending of this movie that they never filmed this was like his original idea for the ending was that david warbeck and katrina mccall uh liza and dr john were going to be now dead at an amusement park enjoying the quote great amusement park of life what yeah I can't, they couldn't do it because apparently they just couldn't like get scheduling or they couldn't empty the park or whatever they wanted to do. It wouldn't have worked out. And so they kind of like this, this part, I'm not entirely sure how much I believe this because the, I think the writer of the film said that they basically devised the finale of the film on the spot. So that scene where they're in the beyond, I, and mm-hmm. that can't be true. They, they could. I actually really liked the ending. I thought it was really well done. It's great. It's it's a great ending. But the the scenes where they're in the beyond, the beyond looks like the painting that Schweik was working on when he died, and that has been in the hotel this whole time. So that that scene, they they all say that that was the last scene they shot was the finale of the movie. They couldn't have just come up with it on the spot, or I guess they could have because it it ties in so perfectly with that painting that's been a, a running image throughout the movie that I just felt like that had to be something they intentionally layered. But I mean, what do I know? Maybe it was, it was just a happy accident. Works for me. 
either way, I, I thought it was really good. And then what does it say at the end? And you will face the sea of darkness and all therein that may be explored. Yeah. And they, they both look up and Dr. John, whatever his last name is, and Le- um, Liza open their eyes and they're obviously white because they're now in the beyond. And there's no going back. It's like they turn around, same scene. They turn forward, same scene. And, and uh, David Warbeck, Dr. John, has such an amazing face. Like the look of anguish on his face with those contact lenses. And he's kind of in slow motion as he's running towards the camera. It, it is fantastic. I love the look of it, the, the way they brought that kind of painting to life and like the, the little like low mist and how dusty it is and the, the vague human outline like bodies it like lined up. It looks really cool. It's just and, like a flushscape. It's just the, this landscape yeah. that, that you see. It really sets the feeling. And you know, like the music really, really makes that end too. And the music is so much part of this movie, but it's really, really strong in the end. No, it, it's great. It's great. And so I, I think maybe we should mention just a little bit the Gates of Hell trilogy, the, the previous one being City of the Living Dead and the next one being House by the Cemetery. They're all unrelated movies they don't have they have they share actors sometimes katrina mccall i believe appears in all of them but um but they're they're otherwise unrelated they only they deal with or each one deals with the idea that whatever plate the location is is one of the seven gates of hell i have not seen the one i've seen the least i think is house by the cemetery that that's been i i, I never I'm not a big fan of that one actually. I own them all. That one is not as entertaining to me. I it is not. And I I hate to say that about a movie in which one of the one of the characters is a, is called Dr. Freudenstein. <laughs> which <laughs> is such a good name, but that movie it just kind of bores me. In fact, yeah, I when I bought it the first time, it was a defective DVD. And I went to return it. I, so I only get to halfway through and I went to return it. And they want, they asked if I wanted to change it for the same thing. And I'm like, it, could I not? I, I, I was not enjoying that movie, but it legitimately doesn't work either. <laughs> so I, I, it wasn't until a couple of years later, I watched it fully the whole way through. And then I, I think I've watched it maybe once or twice since then. Cause I keep thinking that maybe it'll click with me uh, because I, I, sometimes I'll just go through and I'll watch the trilogy, but um, not a big fan of House by the Cemetery, but City of the Living Dead, I really enjoy. And not as much as The Beyond, but City of the Living Dead has some really great moments in it. Oh, some really good atmosphere as well. Another really great score by Fabio Fritzi. That one. Yeah, I was just going to say the music in that one is pretty awesome. It, I, it has kind of a Pink Floyd vibe at times. Some of the more like kind of spacey Pink Floyd sounds. It also has some of the most disgusting special effects I've ever seen. Like just watching people vomit their intestines. It, it really started to trigger my gag reflex the first time I saw the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That one does for sure. Yeah. That, but, that's a good one too. But there, I, I get, I've always been a sympathetic, sympathetic puker. Like if somebody else is vomiting, <laughs> I'm like, I, 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 that will set me off. Yeah. There, there is a lot to be had in that one for sure. How about Fulci or Fulci in general? I mean, I, we we talked a little bit about Michele Suave, but 
but how about Fulci? Would you, I mean, you said you were kind of getting into his movies. Um, any others that you would, that you liked? Any others that stick out in his filmography? He's got a well, really I'll, uh, I'll mention again, uh, Zombie 2. So that that one is just is just really, really well done. Um, that one stands out to me as probably one of my favorite Lucio Fulci films. You've got, again, like a great soundtrack. You have some pretty absurd things that happen. Everything, again, is like surreal, over-dramatized. I don't know. I, I just really, really like that one. And it's kind of, you have like this shark versus zombie scene. And in this in this movie, this is actually an epidemic um, again. So it's it's going to spread in in this one. And in not all of his movies does that actually happen, where you know people people are bitten and the the dead rise and they come back and they're hungry for flesh. Like not all of his movies center around that. This one does pull from that. I really re recommend Zombie Two. And so Romero's Dawn of the Dead. He re-edited it and it was rescored by Goblin as zombie and so zombie 2 i think was filmed around the same time i want to say there was conflict there because people were saying oh it's a sequel it's this and so zombie 2 being worked in as part of romero's whole night of living dead dawn of the dead part of romero's series and it there was some conflict surrounding that yeah as so, far as i know yeah because uh, uh sorry sorry go ahead it's part of the part of what they call the the zombie trilogy so I think, I don't know. I just really, really like that movie. It has an interesting history. Um, and the shark they used was actually real. I don't agree at all with the way they did it. They actually, um, they used a diver to play the part of the zombie. A zombie ends up falling overboard off a ship and um, fighting with a shark. And they actually ended up sedating the shark and like feeding it really well before the scene so that the actor had a better chance of not getting, um, I don't know, dead. Yeah. So um, <laughs> they used a tiger shark and I don't agree with how they did it, but it's kind of a unique in the sense that this wasn't, you know, like nowadays it would probably be like computer generated graphics, which I'm not a fan of. So that is just kind of this over the top ridiculous situation in that film. And it also leaves you kind of wondering. So if, if the zombie has bitten the shark, are we now, do we now have like this zombie shark on our hands, which is what like snakes on a plane kind of shit, but no, it doesn't take you in that direction, but. Um, it's a it's a really, really good film, and it's set in more of a tropical locale. It's kind of like in between New York City and in the tropics for that one. And uh, I think another name for that one is Island of the Dead, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I can't remember. Island of the Living Dead. Okay. Uh, yeah, that one. I just want to say for people that are looking up, I believe that movie is just called Zombie when you're looking for it now. It is called Zombie 2, or that's what it was produced and released under. But I think if you're looking for it now, um, because nobody knows, nobody really knows Dawn of the Dead as Zombie anymore. They they just kind of, my DVD is only Zombie. Um, yeah, and it's going to be with an I. So it's just Z-O-M-B-I. Yeah, and there, there's a bunch of sequels with that. And what's really weird about it is all of the sequels keep their original numbering. So... Like it, it go my DVD set. I don't have a set. I just bought them all individually. But my DVDs go from Zombie to Zombie Three, Four, and Five, with no Zombie Two in the middle because Zombie is is Zombie Two. It, it's it's a mess. But it, yeah, it's because and then Dawn of the Dead would be your Zombie One by yeah, Romero, technically the re-edited and scored by Goblin One. <laughs> yeah, because that was a co-production with Dario Argento. I've I've seen 
a handful of other Fulci movies outside of Zombie, which is great. I second that. You're completely right. That is a great movie. Um, and his Gates of Hell trilogy. Uh, I've seen actually other movies, I think, that are technically better than The Beyond, but The Beyond is like the one that I, I, my heart is always going to belong to The Beyond. But there is always in his movies a sense of excess and mm -hmm. definitely a sense of sleaze. Even, even when he's like, the excess is just drama. Everything is very heightened. Um, it is. It's very dramatized. Like The Black Cat. That's another one of his films. Yeah, yeah. I saw um, that. I, I saw that. I got to see that in theaters uh, right before pandemic. That one made me laugh a lot. That one that one was kind of hilarious for me. The Black it's, Cat. I, I have that one still. And if I need a good laugh, I'll watch it. It's it it's another ridiculous one. Um, yeah, <laughs> I I'm not the biggest fan of that movie, but there there is some fun of that. So a um, couple of things here, I just like like I was talking about how silly a lot of the dialogue is. One of my favorite lines in the movie is when uh, Liza is talking to the people renovating her hotel, and they're asking they're talking about money and. Uh, Liza says to her, says to the guy, you have carte blanche, or you have carte blanche, but not a blank check. And towards the end of the movie, David Warbeck, when they're in the hospital and they're, he, he's unloaded his gun. Uh, speaking of which, why doesn't he ever learn just to shoot the zombies in the head? I was going to mention that. Um, he keeps shooting them in the torso. He notices that a couple of them have gone down once he shoots them in the head. But then he reverts to shooting them in the torso again, being like, I'm running out of ammo. I'm like, what they're, the hell? They're very slow-moving zombies. They're not even actually grabbing for a while. They, they like, you, you can walk right up to them. And he does. And he, 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 like, walks right up and shoots them point blank in the stomach and the arm and then goes for the head after he's dropped a few by shooting them directly in the head. It's the weirdest thing. But He's like, I'm a man of science. Yeah. I do what I want. I and guess he just continues he, to shoot them in the torso. <laughs> he does have this look like he's kind of like bemused and maybe he is just experimenting to see what happens but um <laughs> he they get into the ele elevator him and liza and they're going down and as the elevator's door elevator doors are closing did you did you ever notice how he loads his gun no the, i didn't pay attention to that he's he's pulling ch shells out and he starts loading the gun and the door closes before you see him do it. But he starts to put the bullet in the barrel of the gun. What? <laughs> like, he's just like he's loading them from the barrel down. It's the little Acme bang flag comes yeah. out. And it, it had to have been just such a, a conscious choice that he's because there's one thing you can say about David Warbeck is he always looks like he is finding something amusing about what he's doing, even though he's kind of kind of a gruff asshole at times in the movie in the movies that he's done with uh Fulci he just has a bemused expression on his face at all times one thing I, I noticed about uh the morgue in particular the first time around when Joe's wife goes in with his clothing and the daughter is sitting out in the hallway and you know this is set in Louisiana but you can tell that it's um there's a translation issue uh from Italian because instead of do not enter it says do not entry yeah yes so grammatically like we see that that wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be worded that way so you can tell that uh someone translated it from italian and and put that there so do not entry 
N- one notable thing about the morgue because it's set in Louisiana. So now that you mention it, you bring up Louisiana again. This was shot on location and it was it was mm-hmm. shot primarily like some of the interiors were done on sets um, in Italy, but it was almost all the exteriors were shot. I think every exterior was shot in Louisiana. Yeah, you see yes. them driving down the streets. There's like Decatur Street and yeah, you see that they're in they're in New Orleans. This is maybe the only New Orleans set movie that I have ever seen that does not use Mardi Gras or uh, like it doesn't feature all of the the Louisiana like or it doesn't just feature all the hallmarks that you know from movies. It was a, a weird show of uh, restraint on Fulci's part, I think. Yeah, there's not. I mean, there's one. There's one scene where Dr. John is in a bar and there's like some amazing jazz playing that really, but, but a lot of the film isn't really, it doesn't really show you a lot as far as like the setting, you know what I mean? Like in the beginning, you get an idea. The, the townspeople are, are cruising up in, in their boat in like the, the swamp area and coming up on the hotel. It kind of gives you that setting, but they don't really do a whole lot with, with the location other than just a couple things. Um, one thing to note, I'd actually be really curious to where they had the funerals for Joe and his wife. I think that was St. Louis Cemetery number one that they filmed that part at. Uh, St. Louis Cemetery number one. Okay. And that is where I was married once upon a time. And it's a really beautiful old cemetery. You can't go in there now without being like part of a tour group or unless you actually have relatives buried there. Um, but it's it's a really, really beautiful beautiful cemetery um just to note i I really recognized it there's st louis cemetery number one and st louis cemetery number two and i think that was number one and that's where that's where i'd been married before before you had to have a tour to be part of uh to cruise around in there so really beautiful i think they could have panned out and shown a little bit more of the cemetery actually i just think it would have been it would have fit the it would have set set everything really nicely for the film yeah watching it this time i did like First of all, that's awesome that you got married there. That's a very, I mean, it, like that location is very um, you, I think. <laughs> uh, but I I do think they could have, um, you're right, they could have used the locations a little bit more. It is a good, like, flavor to this movie, but I, I wish, you know, it had been a little bit more integral. I don't know. I, I, I like it how it is. I don't know what I'm I'm trying to say here. It's your baby. I won't make any suggestions. <laughs> it, <laughs> was... is, it is a great film. I think because I have a fondness for Louisiana and in particular um, New Orleans and that cemetery, I think I just personally wanted to see more of it because I know how beautiful it is. And I was like, man, why didn't they show more of that? You know, I was just kind of like, it's it's such a beautiful place. Why didn't they they show more of that in this film? Especially because they made all that effort to shoot it in Louisiana. They could have shot the whole thing in Italy and just done everything on sets, but but they came all the way there. So I was kind of like, man, I wish they would have uh, shown a little bit more of that, but it is a great film. Yeah, I, I'm, I was just Googling really quick to see if I could find out if that's one of the filming locations really beyond and I, the cemetery. Oh, you're right. The funeral sequence in the graveyard was shot at the St. Louis Cemetery number one. Oh, awesome. Okay, cool. Good to know. Where'd you find that? Uh, it's in the filming section on Wikipedia. Oh, okay. Oh, Wikipedia. So All right. 
if if we believe Wikipedia, if we trust Wikipedia, I'm checking where the citation comes from. It looks like it comes from an interview with the production assistant I was talking about, that Larry Ray. Oh yeah, here we go. There's a Internet Archive Wayback Machine uh, interview with this guy from 2012. Awesome. So. I'll maybe Good I'll to know. That. I thought I recognized it, but both cemeteries are very old and they're both very beautiful. So oh. I was like, I guess it could be either one, but that particular spot that they showed looked, I think I actually have wedding photos right there. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, so do you have anything else you want to say about the beyond? Any other thoughts or notes written down? No, I think we pretty much covered everything. There was the continuity issue I was going to ask you about, but I think you talked a little bit about um, Schweig's painting. And maybe because that was in room 36, so maybe that tied it back into the basement in that sense. Because I was about the uh, crucifixion and everything, like why the nails were left in that room when his death happened in the basement. So the painting. Yeah, and I I, I really like that painting, but I, maybe I just really like how it looks when they actually realize it at the end in the finale. But, um, oh, about that finale, I should say, uh, I can't find his actual quote, but he... I read an interview and he said he thought the ending was kind of a happy ending because as a Catholic, he felt that the characters in the movie had moved beyond the suffering and the pain of life. And they were in an area where they couldn't see or feel anything. And there was no sensation at all. It's clearly in the movie meant to be hell, but it was interesting that he found that as kind of positive in some way. I, I'm not it didn't sound very good to me either way he put it. Yeah, positive is in, I guess, the dead are staying dead and they're not reanimating coming after you. I guess that, I mean, that's a little break from what they just went through, I suppose. <laughs> and I guess those had to be the most uncomfortable looking contact lenses I've ever seen. The blind, the pale over, like the people that had seen the beyond, it just looked like those would have been unbearable to act with i and emily had to do all of her scenes with them yeah she did i would love to get the sheet music for the tune she keeps playing on the piano is that one of fabio fritzi's i believe yeah it's well it's on the score and everything on the score is is attributed to fabio fritzi so okay maybe i can find it i'd like to get that and learn how to play it like i cannot stress enough how much I love this soundtrack. Like I said, I went to go see him perform it live and he did, he did a, a brief concert, kind of a greatest hits of his stuff. But um, no, this music in this, the movie, the music makes the movie. That's why I just couldn't believe that the Americans would, <laughs> would not just edit out some of the, maybe some of the stuff they thought wouldn't work or was too extreme for getting it released here. But the music, why would they change the music? Maybe, I know. I gotta, I gotta look up the score. I'll, I'll, I'll look up the score for that. I should have done it before recording just to see what the music sounds like. All of his films, his films are really great. I, I think we talked about some of the least favorites out of all of them, but yeah, he's one of my, when I think of Italian zombie film, I mean, I know a lot of people jump immediately to Romero. Um, I think of Lucio Fulci and, and I love George Romero and, and I love Argento, but um, I'm a really big Lucio Fulci fan. I would agree with you. I mean, of them, I prefer, I actually, I actually prefer George Romero and Dario Argento when he's at his peak, I think is unbeatable. But Fulci is, is one, is one director I've always kind of felt 
an affinity for there's there's some something of an underdog quality to him <laughs> like he's just trying so hard at every movie he's making and it it's kind of endearing i think yeah and i like a lot of the ridiculous aspects to his films as well i mean i have a huge romero and argeno collection too but there's something that always ties me back to fulci if i'm if i'm having company over in the before times and i'm like hey you know have you seen this yet? Or, you know, something I love. I love introducing people to Fulci that haven't seen his films yet. I feel like a lot of people I know that are into zombie flicks, of course, have seen all the Romero. And so it's kind of fun to introduce people to Fulci and have them have their what the fuck moments with the kind of stuff that happens in his films. I just watched Della Morte, Della More today. And I had a, a sinking feeling in my stomach as I was watching it going, oh, I've made a mistake. There's there's a quality differential between the two movies. <laughs> like, I, I like I I love the Beyond. It's the movie I've gone back to more, but the quality of Della Morte Della Mora is so much higher. Like everything in everything in the Beyond is very haphazard and just like stream of consciousness and whatever he thought of at the day. Everything in Della Morte Della Mora seems very planned. Even when it's random, it seems planned and there is intention and thought into it. And it's also kind of a classier film in many ways that I was like, oh man, these movies, how am I gonna, like, they don't actually tonally go together as much as they did in my memory. I think, I think that they're a good contrast though. They are, and the Fulci connection. So Fulci really kickstarted the zombie craze in... Italy. I mean, of course, Dawn of the Dead probably did that first, but with Zombie 2, Fulci is the one that kind of like opened the floodgates for all of the uh, knockoffs. Knockoffs might be a disparaging word, but that's kind of what some of them were. It, it opened the floodgates for all of the zombie Italian or Italian zombie movies of the 70s and 80s. And then that provides kind of a good bookend with uh, Del Morte Del Amore, which is kind of like the last gasp of that style of movie, even though th this isn't really that style of movie, but I'm just saying that um, that really uh, that period in Italian horror, which was just like so vibrant and so um, plentiful that it's since then, like it hasn't been the same. So yeah, they, they do offer a good contrast and kind of a good bookend to a very um, a very busy period in Italian horror. Yeah, I think it was a great combination. Well, good, good. I'm glad. I hope, uh, I, I, I thought so too, but I, I have to say when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this movie is too good. <laughs> I shouldn't have, I'm bringing everything way down with the beyond. <laughs> no, not at all. I think that it, it's totally perfect because they, they both play off each other. Well, more like Cemetery Man plays off of the beyond in a sense. Um, it came first. It, there's so much inspiration that went into Cemetery Man. So, yeah, I think that they complemented each other very well. All right, we're back. And now we're going to be doing our top fives of the week. Like I always say, these are not necessarily what we consider the best. They're just five that we thought we should mention that we like, we enjoy, and want to, want to share with other people. At least that's how I always approach it. 
I don't like rank these or anything. These are just five that pop into my head, really. So anyway, I'm going to go first. And I'm going to go first with, to keep things trashy, I'm going to go with Hell of the Living Dead, which is a another Italian zombie movie that even in its own liner notes, it is referred to as the worst zombie movie of all time. It is a trashy, I think it's Bruno Mattei did it, but I had so much fun watching it. It's a, it's a great like group watch if you're looking for like a, a another what the fuck zombie movie, but it also has kind of an undercurrent of third world exploitation by developed nations that's running through the entire movie. It's not, not always the most tasteful, but it is, it, it's hard is in the right place, even if it like strays quite a bit. And um, I will just say it has the best fake out scare by a cat I've ever seen. <laughs> so hell of the living dead from, I think 1981, maybe what, what's, what do you, what do you got on yours? Okay. Um, so the first one I'll throw out there uh, in keeping with the gates of hell trilogy, we've kind of discussed this film a little bit on this podcast today, uh, city of the living dead. And also throw in that um, Fabio Fritzi awesome soundtrack. That is one that I considered for my list, but I um, I thought we'd uh, we'd be talking about Fulci enough, so I was trying to go somewhere <laughs> else. That, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you you mentioned that one. So next one, uh, I'm I'm kind of just getting the Italians out of the way, although three of my five are Italian. You said City of the Living Dead. I'm going to go with City of the Walking Dead. Uh, which is a very, it's a very bizarre movie. It's also maybe not the best, not the classiest, definitely not the classiest, but it is also, well, it's also known as Nightmare City. It is really nuts. It's the first zombie movie I've ever seen where they use tools. And these zombies are like, like, fast moving not not fast moving they're human speed moving it's one that i would i would recommend for anybody that liked the gates of hell movies or, or the beyond or uh, what we've mentioned so far nice okay oh. um so we've talked about this one already too but i'm gonna go back to island of the living dead it's definitely my top five otherwise known as zombie aka zombie 2 that one is great zombie or zombie 2 or island of the living dead or however you find it and it's uh I think it's a must see. Like if, if people want to get into Italian horror movies, that's really one that you have to watch. Definitely. So the next one I'm going with is Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. Otherwise uh, known as Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. And this is one I just rewatched recently. I had not seen it since the VHS days. The previous time I'd seen it, I only knew it as Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. I thought it was okay. And then watching it this time, it is an uncommonly gorgeous looking zombie movie. Like it's set out in the English countryside. The cinematography is great. It's got a, it's some great scenery. It's interesting to me to see that it came out pre-Dawn of the Dead. Because when I first saw it, I just assumed it was part of that same wave of zombie movies that came out post-Zombie and Zombie 2. But this actually predates it. So it's interesting how much it predicts the trends and the ways that zombie movies would develop in less than less than a decade, like six years later, and they'd be everywhere and they'd be kind of this style. But this does it first, I guess, and it it does it, if not best, it's a very great example of it. 
So we went down some of the Italians. Um, so I was conflicted about adding Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which the re-edited and scored by Goblin one, which would have led us into the zombie trilogy. But I think I'm going to jump out of the strictly Italian films and say for a very lighthearted, cute one, Fido. Ah, yes, yes. That's, I that's love that a one. great movie. It's like, uh, to me, Pleasantville meets night of the living dead okay so i'm gonna go with my next one uh i'm gonna go with a chinese film bio zombie it's super kinetic it, it's a zombie comedy in a mall so you think dawn of the dead of course but it's these kind of slacker layabouts and their girlfriends are trapped in this mall and there's a government reanimating agent that's bringing the dead back to life and it throws in a lot of tropes from like video games like first person video games it, it, I don't know. It's just so very energetic and a lot of fun and just it is silly, silly, but very funny as well. Well, um, I recently watched one um, actually during spending more time at home during this whole pandemic. Um, it's a Korean film, uh, Last Train to Busan. Yes, I that's a God. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, you were probably focusing on Europe. Um, yeah. For the most part. But I, I thought that one was really good. I wasn't sure what to expect, but I'd heard good things about it. So I gave it a try and it, it was it was a really good film. No, it's great. It's got a it's very propulsive. I mean, I love movies set on trains. Uh, they're always, you know, propulsive is a way to describe almost all of them. But uh, I yeah, that's a really good one. My final one, my my final recommendation is going to be Japanese film Versus by Ryuhei Kitamura. Ryuhei Kitamura. I kind of slurred that the last time. Um, it is, how did I used to describe it? It is kind of a mix between like Dawn of the Dead and Highlander and a Martin Scorsese gangster film. And it's, it's these criminals are out in this forest where the dead come back to life and they're doing, they're like doing one of their deal. They're, you know, they're doing crimes and uh, and the dead start coming back to life. And there's a lot of gunplay, a lot of sword play. It's a super low budget film. I think it's the first from Ryuhei Kitamura, but it, it's really, really hyper kinetic. There's a couple of different cuts out there right now, versions of it. Uh, I've only seen the original one. I really need to see the second one or the, the one that he came and re-edited here that improves it. It's pretty fantastic. It's like, it's super cool. It's a lot of fun. The last one I had, now this is more of a vampire movie, but filmed in Rome, 1964, Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, it, you're right. I love it, Vincent Price. Yes. It, it is kind of a mix between vampire and zombie because they... Yeah. That's kind of why I saved that one for last because I was like, well, it's, it's borderline, but if it's the bill... It's definitely the my preferred version of I Am Legend, even though none of the versions of I, Le I Am Legend ever made have gotten the ending correct. <laughs> like, I don't know why people keep adapting that book and they remove the point of the book that gives the book its title. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, no, that's that's great. I love Vincent Price. That's going to do it for <laughs> us this week. Uh, Benicula, is there anything that you would like to promote anything you got going on that you want to send people towards 
Well, most everything is shut down um, right now and social media is doing some crazy things. So it's just everything's on hold and we're waiting for things to kind of open back up and, and hoping our venues get some support until then. Um, SaveOurStages.com has a lot of good resources. If you have a venue in your area that you were worried about that you would like, be it a, a movie theater or um, a venue that hosts a lot of live shows that you enjoy going to, there are things in place where you can write in and, and kind of nudge them to use some of that funding to keep them keep them afloat during all of this until until we can all gather again. That's really... All I have right now, um, um, but this was a real treat to be on this show today and and be present on the airwaves in, I guess, a little bit of a different way and talk about some of my other passions in life, which include movies. So this was great. And thank you for having me. And I hope um, to hear from you. If you liked any of the films we talked about or recommended today, at least now on Instagram, I'm at Banicula, B-U-N-N-I-C-U-L-A underscore Blanc, B-L-A-N-C. And that's at Instagram. I would love to hear from you if you ended up watching any of these that you maybe hadn't seen before. You're very welcome, but also thank you for being on this. This was a lot of fun. It was good to catch up. And you are, of course, welcome back, like whenever you want. I would love to. I already have ideas. I think oh. this would be would be very fun to do again. So then I will we will be keeping in touch. So, yeah, everybody should check that out. And uh, yeah, I mean. If you're interested, check out Panicula on Instagram and all that. I'm not sure where the future of that is lying, but everybody support local artists <laughs> or independent artists. Thank As you. for me, I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please rate, review, subscribe wherever you're getting podcasts. If you would like to follow along, I do have a Twitter and Instagram page for the podcast as well. That's at TwoHeadedPod at both places. There's also a Facebook page and I'm sure you guys can find it and that'll do it for us. So I will see you all hopefully next week. Mm -hmm.